Today's reading is from John 12, 23 to 33, and John 12, 42 through 50. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one, the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to the world to judge, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Matthew. I serve as a uh, pastor and one of the elders here at Christ City Church. Really glad uh, that you're here, especially if this is one of your first Sundays uh, with us at Christ City. Um, really delighted that you're here. Realize that, um, you know, it can really be intimidating to come into a new church where you're, uh, particularly if you don't know many folks here, you found us on the internet. So I just, I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for exercising courage and persistence and walking into this place. I, I, I really appreciate that. And while you're here, my hope and our team's hope, honestly, is that you will feel welcome, that you will feel seen, that you will feel invited back. Um, and I hope that while you're here more than any of that is that your faith would be stirred and be strengthened in Christ. Um, I hope that your questions about faith, that they are acknowledged and taken seriously. One of the things that we've um, written when we were trying to describe who we are, we posted this on our website a while back, that uh, we aren't a church that's for the perfect or the pristine, um, but we are a community of people together attempting to order our lives around Jesus, uh, rooted in a place and a geography, coming together to remember the promises of God and the work of Christ, and walking together as followers of Jesus. And so thank you this morning for joining us in that walk. 
And thank you for being with us during the season of your life. I just want to say again that I'm glad that you're here. Um, a few weeks ago, as part of our liturgy, um, we read a poem uh, by the late poet Mary Oliver. Oliver passed away just a few weeks ago after a battle with cancer, and she left behind a, a canon of poetry that for many has stimulated faith, has beckoned countless readers um, to be more present, to be more present in ordinary moments of life, to be more present in nature, to be more present in one's living, to be more present with God, and even more present in death. Um, I could have picked any number of examples of Mary Oliver's poetry, but one brief one from her poem entitled Praying, she writes this. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. It isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. I know that some of you are Mary Oliver fans and probably want me to go on about her poetry because you enjoy the sound of my voice reading Mary Oliver's poetry. Um, but actually, it's, it's, not, it's not her poems that has, honestly, that has fascinated me uh, the most. It's actually um, other parts of her story that have really attracted me to her. What's been so fascinating to me over the years has been her approach to becoming a poet. And her approach has actually haunted me in some ways. As a young woman starting out and discerning and anticipating a writer's life, Oliver wrote down everything that she would not have if she chose for her life a poet's vocation. She took stock of her life, her desires, her preferences, her habits, her routines. She looked at all of those and she looked soberly and sober-minded, clear-eyed at her truer loves, the things that she cared about most deeply. And after weighing the possibilities and the potential futures, she forsook all other possible and imagined lives for the sake of a poet's life. In an interview with the writer's almanac, Oliver wrote, I was very careful never to take an interesting job. Not an interesting one. I took lots of jobs. But if you have an interesting job, then you get interested in it. I also began in those years to keep early hours. If anybody has a job that starts at 9, there's no reason why they can't get up at 4.30 or 5 and write for a couple of hours and give their employer their second best effort of the day, <laughs> which is what I did. <laughs> she picked a road. She picked a solitary road, and she walked down it. She wasn't double-minded about it, and she pursued that road all the way all the way to over 30 books of poetry, countless literary awards, and a Pulitzer Prize for poetry in 1984. When Mary Oliver made the decision years ago, the decision to become a poet and have a poet's life, she was making a decision about her purpose, about the things that she was facing and the direction that she was going. She had a fire in her belly to put words on a page that would then put images in the minds of those that might read her work. Her purpose was to contribute to the world through creativity that comes when words are juxtaposed just so and phrases are turned ever so slightly. And her aim in all of it was to be a catalyst for beauty and presence and joy. The thing about purpose, though, is that it doesn't just exist on its own. Purpose has to have a mechanism by which that purpose is realized. There has to be some corresponding process that accompanies the purpose. 
Uh, some of you know I like to uh, barbecue, I like to grill, I like to cook out, and I'm pretty good. Just going to put that out there. I have, in my backyard, I have a grill. Actually, I have three of them. Uh, and for the purpose of one of those grills, I call it brawny. Now, brawny was made by the New Braunfels Smoker Company out of New Braunfels, Texas. Makes the best smoked ribs in the district, if I do say so myself, and I am saying so. But um, if you go to that grill right now, you go to Brawny, open it up, look in. There's not ribs in there. Nothing is in there. It's just sort of black. It's cleaned out. I clean up my grills. You've got to take care of your grills. They take care of you. So it's, all, so it's there. You open it up. And even if you, and I'm sure some of you know your way around, but even if you put some ribs in there and then came back later, opened it up, they're not going to be quite... You know, they don't just, even though the purpose of that grill is to produce the best ribs, there's a process that goes into it, a ritual really of, of uh, spices and smoke and fire and heat and humidity so that that grill, a process so that that grill can produce the purpose of what it was made for. You have to, you see, a, 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 a purpose needs a process. Mary Oliver's purpose was writing poems. Her process was to eliminate all of those things in her life that detracted from her pursuit and fulfillment of that purpose. The job she had, the relationships she said yes or no to, the work habits that she embraced, they were all part of the process that she walked through in service to her purpose. I'll tell you that story about poets and pork because I think it helps us to understand this passage in John 12. And specifically, it helps us to get our arms around what Jesus is saying about his purpose and also his process. Now, we're in John 12. Now, as we're in John 12, I really hope that you've been following us along in the reading plan. If you uh, haven't been, listen, here's what I want you to know. There are copies, hard copies of the reading plan that are out on the connection table. Also on our website where you can download a digital copy or you can just read it on the web if you like. If you listen to our podcasts, then we have also linked it in all of the podcasts. You listen to it on the website, there's a link there. You download it in iTunes, guess what? Bet you didn't know. There's a link to the reading guide. It's there. Friends, here's what I want you to know. Um, as you go through this guide, uh, if you want to deepen and strengthen your walk with God, then immersing yourself in the scriptures is necessary. And the guide, what you'll find is there are a few verses to be read and then a one sentence reflection for you following your reading. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. One of the ways that I've been using the reading plan may not be exactly the way that Justin and Andrea designed it, but here's what I do. I look at the verses and I listen to them each night on my, on my Bible app and I listen to different translations because not just are the translations different, but also the accents of the people reading it are different. And so I can listen to a British guy reading the thing to me. I can listen to a woman reading a scripture from a different translation. I sometimes listen to it in different, uh, different languages that I know like one or two words in because I just I want the word to wash over me and there are different things that jump out because of the different accents or the different translations things that I notice and it's the same passage read every night but I'm noticing and seeing different things as I listen we want this to be a gift to you to help you engage the scriptures in an approachable way and for it to be a benefit to you as you grow in your faith and as you journey with Jesus. So let God's word wash over you. Let it minister to you. Let it encourage you and disrupt you and draw you into a deeper relationship with the Lord. So that's a reading guide. Get one. You can download it. I've already told you the 37 different ways we've tried to put this in front of you. I bet Justin put, tweets it out and then puts it in the newsletter this week. I'm just saying that, I'm not prophesying. I just wonder. Thank <laughs> you.
We are, we are on the home stretch of a 50-week uh, series that began last year um, with breaks in the summer and at Christmas. 50 weeks in the Gospel of John and the central point of John. And for our journey through John is that our belief in Jesus might be strengthened and that you may experience a deeper life with Christ. John says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This last section of John that we're covering um, up through Easter is focusing on the themes of life, death, and life again. It's this trifecta of meaning that emerges over and over in these final chapters of John as Jesus begins to make his way towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards the cross. Now, as we get into John 12, at this point in the story, Jesus has just healed Lazarus in the village of Bethany, and now he's entered Jerusalem ahead of the Passover festival. Now, we haven't covered Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We'll pick that story up in a few weeks, but just know that as we come to John 12, chapter, uh, verse 20, and following the conversations that are there, they're taking place between Jesus, the disciples, and the crowds, and it's all taking place in Jerusalem as the city begins to fill with religious pilgrims ahead of the Passover festival, which will take place in that city. Jesus' reputation as a gifted rabbi, as a gifted teacher, as a miracle worker in the countryside, that reputation is preceding Jesus as he comes in. And there's folks that are swirling around him, that are coming around him. They want his attention. They're demanding his attention. They're probing him. They're interrogating him. And to the questions and demands, Jesus responds with a series of statements wherein he's telling those that are present what his purpose is. He's saying, this is why I'm here. There are five different ways between verses 20 through 50 that Jesus is stating his purpose. They each have a different level of nuance and they have a, a different level of clarity to them. Some of them are just kind of straightforward where he says, this is my purpose. Others of them are shrouded in metaphor and they're a bit more cryptic, but they all center on Jesus' purpose for coming into the world. And that purpose is to bring light, life, and salvation. Jesus' purpose for coming, he says straightway in, this, in these verses that the reason that I'm here is I've come to bring life, I've come to bring light into the, a dark world, and I've come to bring salvation. Each time he mentions his purpose, he's describing it in these terms as light, life, and salvation. I want to quickly touch on two of these purpose statement instances. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, but while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus begins by saying that the hour, that the time, that the, the unique moment in cosmic history has arrived for him to be glorified. That's the word that he uses, glorify. He will repeat and reiterate this purpose, his glory throughout the section. The Greek word that he uses there is doxozo. 
The root of what we have is the same root that we use for the word doxology or to glorify, to venerate, to celebrate, or to extol. Time has come for Jesus to be extolled, for him to be glorified. And the purpose of that glorification is found in the many analogy that he's making about seeds and fruit. Unless a seed fall to the ground, it can't produce new life. For a wheat field to grow, for a harvest to happen, a seed has to fall, has to be buried, and from the ground will shoot the produce of many more seeds. For the seeds to be glorified, for it to step into its purpose, it has to, it has to die first. And in this we begin to see the veiled way Jesus is talking about his purpose for coming into the world and more specifically coming to Jerusalem. And that purpose is bound up in life. That's part of the point that Jesus is using with the wheat metaphor. Wheat's one of the staple foods in the Jewish diet. The wheat field and the wheat produce imagery would have certainly alerted the first hearers that what Jesus is speaking about is that which gives life. They would have understood Jesus to be saying that his purpose is to give life. Even in the arc of the story, John wants us to read this section on the heels of the raising of Lazarus. The most stunning reminder that Jesus' purpose in coming is a life-giving, life-raising, resurrecting purpose. From here, Jesus pivots again back to the theme of being glorified. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is reflecting on the purpose he will have to go through, or the process he will have to go through to achieve his purpose. He says, what should I ask for? For my heavenly Father to save me from this hour, the hour that he just referenced in verse 23 for his glorification. In some ways, it's as though Jesus is sort of wrestling with his purpose and the road that he'll eventually have to walk so that life might be offered. It's like he's having like this Hamlet moment in Shakespeare in the opening act of scene three where Hamlet is wrestling with life and death. And he says, to be or to not to be, that's the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of trouble and by opposing them in them. Jesus comes back to his purpose in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. God responds in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. It's like God is essentially saying, oh, don't, oh, don't worry, I'm about to. Matter of fact, I already did. Going to do it again. Watch. Bet. Jesus returns to his purpose again. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus here is making a, a turn of phrase when he says lifted up. The word here, it's a, it's a different word than doxozo, but has a very similar meaning. It means exalted. It's similar to glorify, but it has a, a bit of a double meaning. It means to be lifted up as an elevation, but also to be extolled and to cel be celebrated and to be venerated. 
When Jesus says, when I am lifted up, when I am exalted, when I am glorified, then I will be the one that draws humanity to myself. The hearers' minds would have gone to the dozens of other passages that talked about the power of God, the name of God, the stories of God being lifted up, and that act of lifting up the name and the work and the majesty and the power of God, of having a salvific effect on its people. To hear Jesus say, I will be lifted up, would have triggered in the memory of those hearers passages like Psalm 34, where it says, I will extol, I will lift up the Lord at all times. His praise will ever be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify, lift up the Lord with me. Let us exalt, lift up his name together. They would have remembered Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Then it concludes this way in verse 10. But you be still. Though the chaos swirl around you, though things aren't the way you thought they should be and they're not going in the direction you want them to go, you be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. I will be lifted up among the nations. I will be exalted. I will be lifted up above the earth. Jesus is circling his purpose like a tiger circling his prey. He's corralling and then finally clearly leaps in verse 47 in case his purpose wasn't coming clear. He wants to make it crystal clear now. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, purpose statement, but to save the world. Jesus wants the crowd to know and the disciples to know that he came into the world to dispel darkness, that he came to be light. And he came into the world to save Not to judge, there'll be judgment, but even that isn't going to happen the way that has been imagined. Those that reject light to remain in darkness, they judge themselves. Jesus' presence in the world and in our world always causes a moment of crisis and comfort for those who encounter the light of Christ. As Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation of the Bible in John 12, 44 through 47, I am the light that has come into the world so that all who believe in me, they won't have to stay any longer in the dark. I didn't come to reject the world. I came to save it. But you need to know that whoever puts me off, refusing to take in what I'm saying is willfully choosing rejection. The word, the word made flesh that I have spoken and that I am and the word, that word and no other is the last word. I'm not making any of this up on my own. The father who sent me gave me orders and told me what to say and how to say it. And I know exactly what his command produces, real and eternal life. And that's all I have to say. What the father told me, I tell you. Jesus' purpose in coming is 
to give life and light and salvation. Jesus came to save. He came so that those who were lost might be found, so that those scattered could be gathered back. He came so that those that needed life might find life and find it eternally. He came so that those in the darkness would be led by the light that was right there in their midst. This was Jesus' purpose. But as I mentioned earlier, purpose doesn't exist on its own. Purpose has to have a mechanism by which that purpose is realized. There has to be some corresponding process that accompanies the purpose. Jesus has been clear with us and with the crowd and his disciples about his purpose. He has identified himself as the one in whom light and life and salvation rests. And the securing of these things for the love of the world is his sole ambition. Jesus' process, though, the way by which his purpose is realized is the most upside-down, insecure way imaginable. Jesus' path of life and light and salvation would wind its way through death and darkness and isolation. Jesus reveals this in the same passages that we read where we uncover his purpose. In 23 and 24, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Verse 32 and 33, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The great paradox of Jesus' mission was that in order for him to succeed, he would have to fail. In order for life to be secured, death would have to be faced down, for light to shine, darkness would have to overwhelm for a time. Salvation would require an isolation. Winning would be losing and loss would be gain. This is why Jesus uses the metaphor of seeds, lest one fall to the ground and dies. There's, there's no harvest then. Unless something is surrendered, unless something is given up, there will be no fruit, no crop, no yield, no end gathering. There will only be a barren field and a pocket full of seeds. But Jesus says, but if it dies, if the seed dies, ah, then it produces many seeds. If it goes into the ground, if it dies, if it's, if it's buried, if it undergoes the transformation that takes place when something is laid down, when something is isolated, when it's planted, when it's entrusted to the Lord, well then in that place it produces something. Sometimes. <laughs> Oftentimes, the process that the Lord takes us on to secure the purpose that he has for us is a wild and roundabout one. You get an amen from somebody on that. It can look like we're getting nowhere. Like progress is not being made. Like we are no farther down the road than when we began. It can look like we are no nearer to life or light or salvation. But church, I need for you to know, I need for us to remember that God's processes are necessary for us to secure his purposes for us. We cannot lose heart nor grow weary, though there may be days and nights where we feel buried in the ground and isolated and in the dark. We can remember that the death that Jesus died also led to the resurrection that he guaranteed. Jesus said not only would he be laid low, 
low as seeds planted in the soil, but that he would be lifted up, that he would be elevated above the earth, but this elevation would be nailed to a cross. His elevation, his exaltation would be his humiliation as he took on the shame and scandal and guilt and disgrace that came with the cross. And yet this was exactly the process that was needed for his purpose to be secured and made known. Sometimes the process that the Lord takes us on to secure the purpose he has for us is a curious, yet it is a glorious one. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks steps onto a Montgomery bus that she had boarded dozens of times before. This evening, though, when the driver demanded that she give up her seat for a white passenger, she refused. The refusal led to her arrest, and that arrest triggered the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted 381 days. Now, often when we tell the story of Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, we imagine that Miss Parks was simply tired that Thursday evening after a long day at work and simply happened into the civil rights movement by happenstance. But that's not the truth at all. Ms. Parks was tired that day, but she was no more tired than any other day after a day of work. She would tell it later in her memoir. She would say it this way. People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically, no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. In truth, Rosa Parks had been involved in the civil rights movement for 12 years up to that point. Her passion and purpose for racial equality and justice was deep and it was developed. This was her purpose. The process she went through to see that purpose materialize included joining the leadership of other civil rights organizations. Her process included receiving training on nonviolent resistance from the Highlander Folk School, which taught other civil rights activists and organizations, including Dr. King, Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The process that she went through to live into the purpose for which she was called and determined meant that she was to be arrested that evening in Montgomery, that she would lose her job as a seamstress. She and her husband, a civil rights leader in his own right, would receive death threats and she and other workers, uh, others in that Alabama town would consign themselves to walking to and from work, walking to and from church, walking to and from visits with family and friends for over a year in an effort to see the work of justice bear fruit. She had a purpose. She also had a process. And yet at times that process didn't look like winning or gaining ground. Sometimes it was darkness. It was isolation. For many of these saints, it was death. But she and so many others, they kept pushing, kept walking, kept believing that resurrections were on the other side of burials. That darkness, death, and isolation doesn't have the last word. Friends, that's our hope today. That Jesus' purpose to rescue us and his process of taking into himself the brokenness and sin of the world, that's our hope and that's our invitation because of Christ's work, because of his purpose, and because of his processes, we too can have hope, strength, perseverance, and for uh, the road that is ahead, endurance. 
So the questions linger, where in your life do you need the reminder that in Christ that we have life and light and salvation? Maybe there are areas that you're struggling with, areas that are just getting the best of you financially or relationally or internally, areas that Jesus is wanting to say to you, surrender that to me. Let me live my life in you and through you by faith. Maybe it's areas in the world that you're wrestling with. Every day you face the hurt and injustice of the world and wondering if it will ever change. And the reminder for you from Christ is to not stop. Don't lose sight and don't lose hope and don't give up. Jesus came to save the world, and that includes you, and it includes folks that you care about, it includes those that you might view as your enemy as well. Jesus' work of salvation, it includes the redemption and renewal and remaking of the systems and structures of the world, rending them of the ways that they oppress and the injustices that seem to flourish all the more each day. Jesus would remind us that resurrection's on the way, that dawn is approaching, that graves and burials don't have the last word, that the word has the last word. And in that we can say, as the psalmist says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Let us rejoice together, friends. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt, lift up his name together. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God Almighty. Let me pray. Lord, we... Uh, want to be fashioned into a people, God, that have the same clear-eyed vision for our purpose, for the, the things to which you have made and created us. And God, we don't want to be a people that despise the process. And we know, God, that there is one who, who wants to discourage and to dissuade we know that there is one that wants to distract us, to take our eyes off of the things that you're calling us to. God, I pray even in this moment over those that might be experiencing the disillusionment that can come. They look around and they, and they just feel as though what they see is darkness and burial and isolation, God. God, I pray that that even in this moment that, that you would communicate to those that are experiencing that truth and that reality, that they would know that, you, that you're with them. That it's not always going to be this way. God, I pray that, that your words, that your life, that remind us that resurrections are on the other side of graves and burials, that that would resonate in us. God, it may be things that we're wrestling with internally. It may be works of justice and mission on, that are external. But wherever it is, God, we, we need to be reminded of who you are in us. 
that it is your life, your death, and your life again that is our hope, that is our salvation, that is our light, that is our perseverance and our endurance for the day. God, I pray that you would stir in us. That you would stir that message in us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.